I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Bearing witness, an Irish member of European Parliament was at The Hague today to support South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. She says the opening arguments were hard to listen to, but essential to hear. And a British lawyer who prosecuted former Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic explains what it takes to prove a charge of genocide and whether South Africa's case is likely to meet that standard. Exit stage left. Longtime NDP leader Ed Broadbent, who some have called the best Prime Minister Canada never had, has died. NDP MP Charlie Angus remembers his friend and mentor as someone who believed in Canada's potential and its people. State of emergency rooms. As hospitals across the country grapple with staff shortages, some rural centres are bringing in virtual ERs. Our guest tells us it's helping his community, but it's no substitute for the real thing. Speaking of poor substitutes, George Carlin's daughter gives us her hot take on the controversial AI-generated version of her late father and his searing comedy. And who wants to be the hand that feeds them? A Calgary Humane Society is trying to persuade a noble animal lover to adopt seven surrendered piranhas into their home, but so far, no nibbles. As it happens, the Thursday edition radio that assumes that's like pulling teeth. South Africa says the plan to destroy Gaza and the Palestinian people comes from the highest levels of the Israeli government. That was the argument lawyers laid out at The Hague today, in the first day of its case accusing Israel of genocide at the International Court of Justice. Israel will present its defense tomorrow. Today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the charges baseless and accused South Africa of hypocrisy. Nevertheless, South Africa made its argument. On average, 247 Palestinians are being killed and are at risk of being killed each day many of them literally blown to pieces. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. Entire multi-generational families will be obliterated, and yet more Palestinian children will become WC. NSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, the terrible new acronym born out of Israel's genocidal assault on the Palestinian population in Gaza. That was Irish lawyer Blina Nigralig, who is supporting South Africa's legal team at the ICJ. Claire Daly was at the hearing. She's an Irish MEP, and we reached her in Brussels. Claire Daly, most of us watched 
those opening arguments, 30 minutes long from afar. You were in that room. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, look, the South African case was incredibly strong. I mean, you've just heard bits of it there. Very, very difficult to listen to because it summarizes the horror that we've been witnessing for more than three months there. I mean, example after example, she went on to talk about every day, 10 children having one or more of their legs amputated without anesthetic. I mean, it was just... It was powerful, and I I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, the South Africans have shown that under the very clear genocide convention that Israel has engaged in actions which have targeted the Palestinians as a group, this is a a pivotal moment, I think, for the work of the ICJ. It, It really is an important case. Israel, as you know, has and will continue to say that it has a right to defend itself. It was attacked by Hamas and other countries back it up in in that statement. Does Israel not have the right to defend itself? Uh, It doesn't. uh, And these cases have been adjudicated on previously. They are the occupying power in Gaza. Whatever happens in Gaza, whatever goes in and out and moves in Gaza is under their direct control. So the right to self-defense really applies in the case of an external invasion. But I think the clear difference and what makes this case so unique is that the Israelis would not dispute the killings, the serious harm and all of those measures but where their undoing is is the intent because they themselves and their own words have incriminated them that they have said that those actions are engaged in to basically undermine and physically destroy the Palestinian population that is all yet to be proven that is all yet to be proven of course as this case goes on and intent is is the hardest part to prove when you have these cases and this one is quite easy when you look at the huge appendix submitted by the South Africans and the evidence that they gave today of not just my words, because that would be completely wrong, but of the Israeli authorities' own words from their president, their prime minister, minister after minister, all of them making generalities, calling the Palestinians human animals, talking about them not being allowed to remain there, saying there was no distinction between Hamas and civilians, there are no innocents, targeting women, children, everything, invoking Amalek, saying we need to go after all of them. Um, so that's their word. And that was introduced as evidence today. I mean, you're right, of course, it's up to the court to adjudicate on whether they are guilty of uh, genocide. But um, I would be absolutely hoping that as a bare minimum, the court would say, stop your actions until these claims can be further investigated. I'll be speaking in just a few moments with a former prosecutor at this this very court on this this very allegation of genocide in in a previous case. So we'll talk about that kind of evidence and Mm. what is needed. To, to prove these allegations. But as you know, in addition to, to Israel pointing out that it was attacked on October 7th and it, was de- it is defending itself and protecting itself, uh, we've also heard the National Security Minister uh, of Israel refer to all of this as the, the world, quote, joins the theater of the absurd and spreads blood libel against the state of Israel. I wonder if you think that this case can actually make a difference those type of words display such a 
break with the reality on the ground. It, it shows such a, a lack of humanity for the innocent civilians who are dying in their hundreds every day. Uh, the homes destroyed, 1.9 million people displaced already. It shows an attitude. And I, I thought that was interesting that the South Africans opened their remarks by saying that the root of the current conflict lies in the Nakba 75 years ago, that the Israelis have been getting away with breaches of international law for so long now that it has led us to this point. But I suppose what you're suggesting that is even if the court ruled with them, uh, with South Africa against Israel, that Israel would then ignore it. And that is highly possible. But I think the difference it would be is that that would make it incredibly difficult then for some of its Western supporters to continue to stand by them because the truth is that this is only continuing because the Biden administration in particular, but also the European Union establishment have allowed Israel to keep going. They've armed them, they've stood by them. Uh, should the ICJ rule against Israel in this, it would make it very difficult for that support to continue. And without that support, it's very difficult for Israel Israelis action to continue. We also heard Blina Nigralig reference repeatedly the idea of provisional measures. That's what they want the court to bring in. For you, is that the definition of success here? From the very beginning, we, this is what we want is a ceasefire. I mean, anybody with a shred of humanity must want the slaughter to cease. It's just an incredible indictment of the state of international law if the court doesn't do something to assist, I think we'll have a huge crisis um, coming out of that. So on the positive side, I mean, Israel ceasing its actions against Palestine can only ultimately benefit the people of Israel as well. And I thought it was really poignant that the South Africans drew on their own history. I'm somebody who I suppose became politically active in the 80s uh, around the struggle to end the apartheid in South Africa. And for them to draw on their own history and to be there as a sort of a post-apartheid state, which is only 30 years old, and to draw on their own suffering and be able to point a way forward, a way forward which leans on international law and social justice and self-determination. That's the only way in which there'll be peace for everybody, including the people in Israel as well. That's so important also. There, there is no going back on this, you know, um, there must be a resolution to it. Claire Daly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Claire Daly is an Irish MEP. She's in Brussels. Sir Jeffrey Nice isn't there, but he has been watching the trial, and he knows a thing or two about the law on genocide. He prosecuted former Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. He also does pro bono work for victims groups. We reached him in Canterbury, England. Jeffrey Nice, from what you have seen and heard so far, does South Africa have a clear-cut case against Israel? I'm not prepared to answer that question because commentators answering such central questions is really helpful. What is quite clear is that Israel has done and its leaders have said a number of things that have enabled a case to be built against them containing, uh, as arguable, all the elements of genocide. Whether, of course, on a final analysis that evidence will be found to be enough is not for this hearing, not for the near future. All that this hearing has to decide is whether there is the prospect of that being proved. 
And from the things that Israel has said and done, yes, it is possible those things may be proved. Let's talk about those those statements a little bit, because that aspect of this, specifically as South Africa's lawyers try to, to prove intent, which is a key part and the most difficult part, many have argued, to proving the genocide allegations. Here's part of what one of South Africa's lawyers, Tembeka Ngaitobi, said at the court. There is an extraordinary feature in this case that Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. And one of the comments that has been reported on just on January 3rd by the Canadian press, CBC News published it as well, uh, that Israel's finance minister said his country should, quote, encourage migration, end quote, of Palestinians from Gaza and reestablish Israeli settlements there. That's just one of the comments that have been reported on. Uh, what kind of specific evidence, in addition to those those that we've heard and seen in headlines and stories, will the South African lawyers have to present here to prove that difficult aspect of intent? Well, it's the same as with any other crime. You prove intent by in combination what is done and perhaps what is said about what is done. Now, as has been said by the Israeli State of Israel leadership and all the way down to the soldiers. Might always be said to be, well, this is just something said in the heat of the moment and you don't take it seriously. In the same way as when somebody comes up to you and says in a friendly or not so friendly way, God, I could kill you for that. You don't necessarily believe them. If South Africa proves that there is a pattern of these things being said at all levels, then it becomes much harder to say this is just off-the-cuff excesses of language without a specific intent. More significant <clears throat> is when things are done or said that look criminal to the outside world or may look criminal to the outside world and the leadership does not immediately disavow itself of them or bring people back and say you shouldn't have said or done that and we're now going to try you and punish you. Now none of that has happened in this case. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did say this week Israel has no intention of permanently displacing Gazans or occupying the territory. How much weight would statements such as those carry? It would be something the court would want to hear from Mr. Netanyahu himself in order to assess the genuineness of his protestation. So worth remembering, by the way, as we look back at the similar case, instituted by the Gambia in respect of and against Myanmar, that at that time, Aung Suu Kyi was still on good terms with the leaders who have now, of course, locked her up again. And do you remember? She tended in person to argue her case. It would have been interesting, it was unrealistic, to expect Mr. Netanyahu to turn up and be a witness in his own case on this occasion. We know that Israel will, will present its case or begin to present its case tomorrow. They have already said and will continue to say that Israel was defending itself and continues to defend itself, that Hamas triggered all of this. How do you think, based on your experience, that will factor into this, that an attack precipitated this war, in their view? Well, Self-defense is indeed available to anyone under attack, and there's no doubt about it. The 7th of October attacks were an attack. 
However, self-defense is no free pass to allow you to do or say anything that you like. It has still to be reasonable. It has to be in accordance with the laws of war. And if, by way of self-defense, you're going inevitably to cause collateral damage, by which for these purposes we mean death of others, civilians and soldiers, then your actions have to be proportionate. The more and more over the recent weeks, people who, with knowledge, have been saying, this can't be proportionate, this must be excessive. And that, I think, is going to be something that will be of critical importance. I was just speaking a moment ago with Irish MEP Claire Daly, who said uh, among the things she was moved by was uh, the South African lawyer's reference to South Africa's history uh, of apartheid and how that informs this case from their perspective as well. Mm. From a legal perspective, does South Africa's own history have any bearing on how the court will see it? Wouldn't have thought so. But what is so important and valuable is that South Africa is doing that which so many other countries of more obvious candidature for doing this, more obviously powerful, more obviously having influence uh, over Israel, should have done and haven't done. Countries like Great Britain and America and European Union countries have done nothing. And twice it's been the global south. We also count South Africa as well as Gambia as the global south that have shown what other countries should have been doing. South Africa showing the way. Jeffrey Nice, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Not at all. You're most welcome. Sir Jeffrey Nice is a lawyer who has worked on human rights and genocide cases. He's in Canterbury, England. He never led the country, but Ed Broadbent led the new Democratic Party to new heights. Mr. Broadbent was a university professor when he was first elected to the House of Commons in 1968, winning his Oshawa Whitby seat by a mere 15 votes. He was elected leader of the federal NDP in 1975, a post he would hold for 14 years and through four elections. During that time, he pushed the NDP to the left and pushed more voters to embrace its social democratic views, leading to a rise in public opinion polls for his party and especially for him. Ed Broadbent has died at the age of 87. From our archives, here's Mr. Broadbent speaking to As It Happens guest host Peter Zosky in July of 1975 on the day he was first elected leader of the NDP. You think you'll ever be Prime Minister of Canada? I think, uh, frankly, that there is a very good chance of that. Uh, not stating it in any personal terms of saying that that is my objective uh, in life in the sense of what I want to be, but I certainly want very soon to have an NDP federal government. And I think that the prospects of that uh, are indeed very good. I think we can win a minimum an absolute minimum of 50 seats in this country in 1978. That's a long way from Prime Minister Broadbent. No, that's, that's, that's one election away, maybe. Former NDP leader Ed Broadbent, who has died at the age of 87. Charlie Angus is a longtime NDP MP for Timmins James Bay. We reached him in Cobalt, Ontario. Charlie Angus, Ed Broadbent, of course, did not become Prime Minister and didn't rack up as many seats as he predicted in that conversation. 
But the online news outlet, the Taiyi, recently called him, quote, the greatest prime minister Canada never had, unquote. How would you describe him? Uh, I think that's a pretty good description. One of the things that Ed uh, taught me um, is that, you know, politics has become such a game of points and statistics and, you know, winning winning a poll this week and not worrying about down the road. Ed focused on tangibles. What was it that we could do in Parliament to actually make a difference in the lives of people? Never lose sight of that. And Ed, he brought an international perspective. He was very involved internationally um, with the International Socialist Movement, working with people like Willie Brandt, and he brought that. And he was able to convey it to people in a way that sounded very normal. You know, if you think of intellectual, academic politicians, I'm not going to get in that book at all. But Ed certainly made me feel like I could do my job and I could be articulate. And he really was a mentor. When did you first meet him? Well, when I first met Ed, I was 18 years old um, and I had no intention of voting. I was a punk rock anarchist um, and I was working in in a restaurant and Ed came in. And I couldn't believe that I was seeing the Ed Broadbent up close because Ed, to me, was integrity. He spoke on issues that really resonated. And I I remember running out uh, into the restaurant to shake his hand, uh, even though the maitre d' would kill me for daring to talk to to the the customers. It's interesting you say that because as someone who, who didn't want to vote, you describe yourself as punk anarchist, you saw something in him. Absolutely. And I think a lot of Canadians did. And one of the amazing things was is that I ended up becoming uh, a New Democrat parliamentarian, and I sat with him in caucus, and I remember telling him, Ted, you don't remember the first time you met me, did you? And he was like, no, I said, and I told him the story, and Ed would laugh, and he'd say, we're going to go back there and have a bottle of wine with the owner, and we're going to talk socialist politics, and we'll talk all night. That didn't end up happening, but to, to, to actually sit in Parliament with, with someone of the caliber of Ed Broadbent for me, that's one of the great highlights of my life politically. Do you consider him one of the top people or reasons that you entered the field eventually? I used to say when I was younger, I had two heroes, Joe Strummer of The Clash and Ed Broadbent. And I think what made Ed such an important figure is, again, he believed in the goodness of people. He believed that people were smart. Um, He believed in a politics that you didn't need to dumb things down or jazz things up or light fires to get attention. If you presented a plan, if you explained it to people in simple language, people in Canada would do the right thing because he believed in this country. He never lost that optimism in people, even as I think we've seen politics has gotten a lot more toxic as of late. Ed always was saying, stay focused on how you can use your tools in Parliament, working across party lines if you have to, however you do, but it's always about making life better for people. His parents, uh, as I've been reading, were conservative voters, always. As leader of the NDP, though, he moved the party further to the left. He said he believed equality required a, quote, fundamental change in the distribution of power and wealth in society along class lines, unquote. So where did with the, those beliefs, those social democratic beliefs come from? Well, I think Ed was just a really smart guy. <laughs> and he knew that our society was moving to, towards 
inequity at times, and that government had a role to play. Uh, Ed was a champion of feminist politics at a time when it was still the old boys club. He fought against poverty, he fought for workers' rights, he fought for Indigenous rights. Uh, He brought a lot of that into the political mainstream and put it on the agenda that forced governments to talk about it. He really brought, I think, a lot of that that passion, but also that vision of a better world uh, and said, this isn't pie-in-the-sky geek stuff. This is this is what we are called to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And that was his vision of politics. He made an impact, clearly, but he never did lead the NDP to the breakthrough that he was fighting for so long. How did he handle that disappointment? Well, uh, there was a moment, I think, in 87, 88, uh, where Ed's numbers were probably higher than anyone else's. Again, because people trusted him, it didn't happen. Um, he stepped out of politics for a number of years and did his work internationally. But he came back when Ed, Jack Layton ran. Ed Ed got fired up, and so I got to sit in my first caucus meeting with uh, Ed Broadbent as a member of Parliament. And he came back just as you were elected, right, in 2004. So what was it like to finally work alongside him? I, to Again, to sit from, from having gone from an 18-year-old punk rock kid to sitting in Parliament in my, you know, $100 suit that I, the campaign bought for me because I didn't own one, uh, for my first day of Parliament to sit with Ed Broadbent. I, it, it was a dream come true, but it was also hugely uh, motivational because, you know, the the drama, the chaos, it was a minority Parliament, we thought we were going to have a, we were going to be going to an election, and Ed, Ed just said, Stay calm, stay focused, and then when Ed put the fire on, and you're sitting beside Ed Broadbent, really delivering a blast. It, it was such a such a learning experience, and again, he did it all from a perspective that we're here to change how life was for people, to make it that much better in degrees, uh, you know, by inches, by foot, by yards. What's the big picture, and how are we going to do it? That to me is Ed Broadbent's legacy for Canada, and certainly as someone who knew him, it's changed how I saw my role uh, in Parliament and as a, as a Canadian. Charlie Angus, thank you. Thank you so much. Charlie Angus is in Cobalt, Ontario. He's a longtime NDP MP for Timmins James Bay, and he was a friend and former colleague of former federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent. Mr. Broadbent has died. He was 87. That is how it all began 25 years ago this week. No doubt some of you are now picturing Mafia boss Tony Soprano driving on the New Jersey Turnpike right now. That opening scene of The Sopranos might be as vivid as ever in your mind's eye, but trust me, after pulling it up on YouTube, you'll be struck by the 720p patina of it all. And then you will absorb the fact that it has somehow been a quarter of a century since Tony and his unsavory, yet somehow not unsympathetic, cast of characters lit up your TV screen. 
To mark the silver jubilee of the iconic HBO series, we thought we would revisit our conversation with actor Steve Van Zandt, a.k.a. Tony Soprano's right-hand man, Silvio Dante. From 2019, here's our former host, Carol Off, speaking with Mr. Van Zandt as he reflected on the 20th anniversary of the show. Your ability to turn some of the lines in The Sopranos into the funniest moments in that uh, show. How did you do that? How did you make those lines funny? They're really dark. <laughs> well, that's the whole essence of the show, isn't it? It's just sort of <laughs> dark and funny simultaneously. <laughs> um, it's just really, really good writing, you know? Uh, that's what it comes down to, you know? These characters that have so much depth and, and are so distinctive uh, with very little information really you know that's that's a real craft that's the highest level of that craft of screenwriting you know it's what i think it's what distinguishes the show really in many ways from so many others and and makes it the extraordinary show it is you have you know 12 or 15 regular characters every one of which you could spend the entire hour with and and probably have a good time (laughs) and be very entertained from 2019, that was Carol Off speaking with Steve Van Zandt, who played Silvio Dante on The Sopranos. The iconic TV series debuted 25 years ago this week. When you said uh, Silver Jubilee, yes. since then, all I've heard in my mind is uh, Tony Soprano saying, it's our Silver oh, Jubilee. Right. Yeah, in the accent. If you've been to the emergency room recently, this may not sound like news to you, which I guess is part of the point. Today, the Canadian Medical Association released a statement saying ERs have become so overwhelmed, patients and staff alike are suffering, and they're calling on the provinces and territories to get busy improving conditions and investing in health systems. And while ERs across the country grapple with overcrowding, some rural health care centers have spent the past year struggling to keep their doors open at all. That's why in Newfoundland and Labrador, the provincial government is looking to a relatively new brand of healthcare, virtual ERs. And the first to open was at the Dr. Y.K. John Kittywake Health Center in New West Valley. Mike Tiller is the mayor of New West Valley. We reached him there. Mayor Tiller, if we were to walk in to this health center in New West Valley in an emergency situation, what would happen? What would we see? Uh, you would go in and you would be, first of all, you register, of course, and you'd be triaged by one of the staff nurses that are at the hospital. Uh, then you would go in front of the virtual screen, or if you were, you know, severely uh, sick, you would be lying on the bed and, and the screen would be brought to you. Uh, the virtual doctor would then start giving instructions to the nursing staff and to uh, either a nurse practitioner or a respiratory therapist or an ACP, and they would provide the advanced care under his direction. So, They may tell uh, the staff to do EKGs, they may order blood work, they may order x-rays, they may require sutures, they may require any number of things. And the hands-on from the staff that are there would uh, go under the direction of the the virtual doctor. That's that's interesting Uh, you mentioned that because as you're describing that scene, having not seen it myself, my initial thought was, you know, someone actually putting their hands, a medical professional putting their hands on you, not just seeing you through a screen, in addition, just as human beings to have human contact, but just that expertise to know that that's there. Is that comforting for people? Oh, most definitely. Uh, our, our hospital is well staffed with uh, uh, 
uh, I can't say well staff, but the staff that they do have <laughs> yeah, are very that's the competent. problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're very competent. They're carrying the nursing staff, the LPNs, the lab techs. Uh, they, they all do a wonderful job to keep the place going. But of course, they need the the direction of a, of an MD when certain scenarios come up. But it does say a lot about where we are at, well, in terms of technology, but also the realities of the healthcare systems across this country. Yours is just one example. You were a paramedic for decades. When you were a paramedic, do you think a system like this, I mean, is this something you imagined or you thought would be the right right thing for patients? It's not not anything that I would thought would have ever happened. I mean, we were used to having our complement of doctors. We were used to, uh, you know, going in in the mornings and the doctors doing their rounds and checking on their patients and you know, it was running like any other hospital in, in, in a big city. It was it was a wonderful thing to see. And then it seemed like overnight it just went, okay, we have no doctors now and we're going to be closing our emergency room. So it came as a shock. I think we uh, I was always under the impression that this wouldn't happen. And uh, for the longest time, uh, dealing with uh, day after day, week after week, month after month of, of more times than not, the hospital emergency room being closed, it was not a comforting feeling to uh, to the taxpayers in this town in general because if you lose your hospital, then you don't have much to incentivize people moving back home or starting families or you know keeping your town growing and, and and vibrant. You know we're still being told that you know we know that there's recruiting going on, but you just can't make a doctor go where you want them to go. They have to want to be there, and you have to make them feel like this is a good opportunity and a good place for them. What are your constituents telling you? They want doctors in the building. You know, they're very happy that they can go now. And, and of course, you know, they're quite relieved that they don't have to travel uh, all that way. But, again, you know, they're frustrated, too, because if they go up and they see a doctor and they get treated for an ailment, and then they have to go back two weeks' time to, for a follow-up, but they're not getting the same doctor. And they have to repeat, you know, the same process again. And so it's a bit frustrating for them, but in the same it's a lot better than again, you know, having to wait in an emergency department for 12 or 14 hours and, and you know, maybe not get seen to at all. How did it get to this point there? I think that's the million dollar question. I think for the longest time, uh, I think we just assumed that we had lots of healthcare professionals, we had lots of nurses, we had lots of LPNs, we had lots of doctors. I think we just always assumed there was a never ending su- uh, supply. And I guess as they got older and started to retire, there, there just wasn't. The, the, the people in the system to replace the amount of people that's retiring. So do you have a pitch then, Mayor Tiller, for doctors who might consider coming to New West Valley? We we, we have a marvelous community. It's a small, safe community. Uh, we have some amenities, and we'd love to be able to grow. And, you know, we will do whatever we can as a town to help accommodate, to help make any professional who wants to come here feel at home. My number is available at the town hall anytime. We will do whatever we can to make you feel like this is a place where you can raise your family. Well, you'll let us know if those calls start coming in. In the meantime, though, health officials in the province, as I'm sure you've heard, have said that this, in their view, is is not just a temporary solution, but the future of medicine is how they're framing this. How does that sit with you? I can see it being uh, something that accompanies uh, the doctors because, we used to have a complement of six doctors, and, you know, they each took their turn, and they each, uh, you know, worked the ER department. If that happened to be now a complement of three or four, and virtual was used to give those doctors a break from uh, having to do the, the 24-hour call every now and again, as it stood before, 
And when we had two or three doctors, they were working 24-hour emergency. They would be up all night dealing with emergencies and then still had to run a full clinic mm-hmm. the next day. And you just can't expect that of people anymore. And, and quality of life is very important to anybody. And, you know, I think virtual can go hand in hand, but having doctors in the building so that the patients that are here can have a continuity of care so that when they go and see a doctor, it's the same one and not, you know, a different doctor every time. Or if there's a, there's a patient that needs a two or three days stay at our hospital, then there's somebody who can look out to them so that they don't have to be shipped out to a, to a hospital that's, that's, you know, an hour and a half away and mm-hmm. away from their family when they could receive the same treatment at our hospital. Mayor Tiller, thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. Mike Tiller is the mayor of New West Valley, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's where we reached him. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe there's someone in your home who wants a dog, like really, really wants a dog. They keep leaving the adoption website open on your computer to the cutest possible pictures of puppy dogs and then looking at you with puppy dog eyes. Well, I'm not saying you should give in, but I am saying the ask could be much stranger. The Calgary Humane Society currently has seven fish looking for a new home, and those fish are piranhas. Here's Jenna Cardell telling CBC Calgary host Lauren McGinnis about them. Okay, so pitch me on adopting these fish. They are really, really, really beautiful. The way that the light reflects on their scales in the water, it looks like gold, like it's like flecks of gold, and they're very graceful and beautiful. So I think that there could be a lot of value to having these scaly friends in your home, just as long as you're careful and responsible with them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. don't get in the tank or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What else stands out on your exotic pet list at the Humane Society? Oh my goodness, we have had everything. At several points, we've had chickens. We even had a rooster at one point. Um, which you could hear through the whole shelter, through your whole workday. So that was wild. We had at one point an eight-foot boa constrictor. Um, Right now, we have a lot, a lot of turtles. And then recently, we just adopted out two axolotls. Oh, wow. Okay. Describe an axolotl, if you don't mind. Uh, Yeah. So they're technically an amphibian, but they live completely in water. Um, And they're from freshwater lakes in Mexico. So they usually kind of live in the dark. They prefer not to be in the light. And they, they're they like these white, light, pinkish little, um, I don't know how to describe them, almost fish, but they have legs, but they're kind of stubby and they have bulging eyes and they look like they're smiling all the time. Oh, so they're just cute as a button. Yeah, they are. A lot of people like them. Like when we get kids visiting, they always want to see the axolotls. Now, the cuteness doesn't tell the whole story, though. (laughs) What do you need to know before you adopt an axolotl? 
For sure. So it's really important to note that axolotls cannot live with one another because in some cases they will cannibalize one another. So they are only children in the tank. Okay, that rounds out the cute story a little bit. How long might it take to find a good home for these more rare pets in particular that are surrendered? It is so hit and miss. Like the rooster we had for two days, which was great. (laughs) And then a Um, farmer came in or what? Uh, yeah, a farmer came in, needed a rooster, and we were like, well, that is excellent because we love the rooster, but we are all trying to get our work done. More animals like, you know, the eight-foot bow constructor that we had for a while, we named her Gucci, and she took about a year to get adopted. It's a really particular person that would probably want a companion animal such as that. And as well, like, when it comes to animals like piranhas, we do have stricter parameters around who we're looking for because we are looking for someone who's going to be quite responsible and respectful. Jenna Cardell of the Calgary Humane Society, speaking with Lauren McGinnis, host of the Calgary Eye Opener. A new hour-long comedy special was posted to YouTube this week under the title, George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. This is the first joke. I'd like to start off with a heartfelt apology. I'm sorry it took me so long to come out with new material, but I I do have a pretty good excuse. I was dead. (laughs) So technically, it wasn't my fault. If you want to blame somebody, you're going to have to blame God. That, of course, is the voice of George Carlin. Although, of course, it's not actually the voice of George Carlin. He died in 2008. That comedy special purports to be entirely AI-generated. The voice and the material, and presumably the laughs. It was posted to the YouTube account of a podcast called Dudesy, which is hosted by comedian Will Sasso. On social media, George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin McCall, posted in part, My dad spent a lifetime perfecting his craft from his very human life, brain, and imagination— No machine will ever replace his genius. These AI-generated products are clever attempts at trying to recreate a mind that will never exist again. Let's let the artist's work speak for itself. We reached Kelly Carlin McCall in Los Angeles. Kelly, what do you think your father would think if he heard that clip? Well, that's kind of the point. We'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) He's gone. He's dead. Uh anybody I'm sure would be flattered, like, oh, I'm still important 15 years after my death. Uh, and people, you know, people want to know what I would say about things. Uh, I'm sure for, for an ego, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but I really don't know what he would think about this particular usage of technology and how it's being used, because, I mean, it was in the movies maybe 15 years ago, but... Um, you know, he certainly didn't have a direct take on it. Although I have been thinking about his piece, Modern Man, uh, which he did just a couple of years before he died. And, um, you know, that wasn't some sort of homage to technology. It was really how much it has infiltrated us and almost dehumanized us. It's one thing to to still be in the zeitgeist and and take a point of pride that that people are still talking about you and want to know what you think. It's another to not be the thing or the person actually saying what you think. Well, especially as an artist. I mean, the whole point of being an artist is expressing yourself. And he, 
he got such great joy from being able to express his feelings, his point of view, his deep thinking, his working things out through his through his consciousness and his mind over the decades. Uh, and so to have some machine slash comedian, I still don't really understand who wrote this material, uh, you know, doing it for him really feels like beside the point. Just personally, was it painful to hear this approximation no, of your father's voice? Not. Okay. Just really made me angry. It yeah. just—I I get like this mama bear energy mm-hmm. around this stuff, and it just—it makes me mad. It, uh, and it's—it's a—it's just a protective anger. Uh, I'm not mad at them, the gentlemen who you know this their podcast or whatever. I mean, I—I I, you know I'm not thrilled with them, but um, I, but I'm just it, there's just a protective nature of wanting to protect the unique person that he was and the unique mind that he had. Um, and anything else is, it's just, it's not him. So why are you pretending it is? And it was done without permission, clearly. Zero permission. No one approached us. The special does begin by stating, quote, what you're about to hear is not George Carlin. And then it goes on to to compare it to an impression that a comedian might do uh, of someone else. For example, they say Will Ferrell impersonating George W. Bush. How does that logic and that explanation sit with you, that this is this is an impression, as comedians do? Uh, I think impressions are usually contextualized. Will Ferrell, example, sketch on SNL. Um, Rich Little, who used to do The Tonight Show, you know it's Rich Little. You're looking at him, and he's doing an impression. Uh, this goes way beyond that, and it is not it is not a very good impression. First of all, let's just be honest about that. It doesn't sound like him. It's not his cadence, and it's not even really his thinking. Um, obviously, can't be his thinking. Uh, so I think it's a I think it's a way of skirting around the legal issue. And the problem is, is that there really isn't a lot of legal clarity right now about this. So they're clearly trying to. F- People are clearly trying to figure out a way to use this technology in a way that doesn't get them in trouble. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to work that out right now is what are our rights with this. And, and it's a very uh, kind of a, you know, it's, it's the Wild West right now. We don't, I, you know, there's not a lot of rights around this. And there's actually legislation being written to try to protect people's names and likeness, whether they're living or dead, uh, in the use, with the use of AI. So this is a conversation that the culture needs to have. It also sounds like you're having conversations with lawyers and legal experts about this. Of course, of course. You know, you posted on social media about this as well, how upset and and angry you were. Has anyone behind this project responded or said anything to you since? Nope. Could they say anything that would assuage your fears or anger? No. (laughs) I mean, I'd I'd like to know why. I mean, obviously, they're fans. Uh, you know, otherwise they wouldn't want to do an homage to him. If anything, it frustrates me even more that these are comedians doing this. Um, you know, do they understand the can of worms as artists of what they're opening? You know, this stuff is kind of has a mind of its own and, a, and technology companies overstep all the time and, and they've overstepped. So, I mean, of course, I would listen to them on a human level. And like I said, I'm not angry with them, but I'm not OK with this. Uh, you know, I would like them to apologize and, and say, well, it was just a wild experiment mm-hmm. and it didn't work and we apologize and, and pull it down. 
Another part of your statement stood out to us as we, as we were reading about it as well. You wrote, quote, humans are so afraid of the void that we can't let what has fallen into it stay there, end quote. Just tell us a bit more about that idea. And I will say it does remind me of, of your father. I'm a person who's fascinated by human psychology, mm-hmm. and we are kind of run by our fear of death. So much of our human life is about staying safe and protected, and um, so much we are motivated so much about, you know, deeply unconsciously from that place. And there is a really difficult relationship we have with death. Certainly in our culture, in American culture, nobody talks about it. Um, and and you know, and there's this fascination with this eternal. This eternal life, just it's strange, and and death is no fun. I mean, trust me, I'm a daughter. I would love to have a conversation with my dad again, but this is not my father. You know, it's so ghoulish, it's so creepy, and and so there's something about allowing things to be over and done and have a limitation. You know, there's this endless progress. There's this endless eternal kind of thinking. That's not how nature works. We are part of nature. We live, we die. The next generation comes um, and then creates things like AI. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of built into our human consciousness. And I think it's just a symptom of it. Kelly, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Kelly Carlin McCall is the daughter of the late comedian George Carlin. We reached her in Los Angeles. We reached out to the producers of Dudesy and podcast host Will Sasso for comment, but we did not hear back by airtime. What can $5 get you? A two-liter thing of milk, carton of eggs maybe, if you're lucky, definitely not both. Well, for the last 150 years, the government of Canada has been paying a $5 annuity to First Nation Treaty 2 communities in Manitoba. Now, Lake Manitoba First Nation is seeking a class action lawsuit against the federal government for its scant annuity rates. The lawsuit, which has not yet been certified, is the latest launched by a growing number of Indigenous groups across the country. Ron Missy Abbott is a member of Lake Manitoba First Nation and is involved in the lawsuit. We reached him in Winnipeg Treaty 1 territory. Ron, each time this $5 annuity comes through, what goes through your mind? Uh, What goes through your mind? I mean, what goes through my mind is the message from our elders, the elders uh, that come before us. Never forget about the treaties. And uh, collecting that $5, although I don't do it every year, it's a reminder that the treaties still play an important role in this country. It's the foundation of Canada as far as we're concerned. And given how long it's been since those treaties were signed and the amount of $5 right now, that that was designated in 1875. It started in 1871 at $3, went up to 5 in 1875. So given all of that... And the importance, as you say, for you and your community on, of the treaties, what's the emotion that comes along with it when you do collect it? Well, it's, it's frustration in the sense that, you know, we're being held back to standards that were put in place in 1871. And Crown not recognizing and acknowledging that everything else has increased except that annuity. 
I mean, what's that $5 going to do nowadays? <laughs> it's not even a Starbucks coffee. What were these annuities initially intended to do? The annuity was meant to help us, uh, support us, uh, so that we could buy goods. Uh, you know, if you go back to 1871, $5, especially if you had a family of five, that $5 allowed a family to purchase a lot of goods to help them survive, certainly the winters, you know, that we were faced here, right? And you mentioned that, that sometimes you collect it, sometimes you don't. What's the deciding factor? Well, it, sometimes it's time, but uh, for example, this year I, I uh, went to my First Nation to collect. I think I hadn't collected in uh, in, in eight years, so I uh, walked away with $40, but it cost me $200 to go get my $40. Just the logistics of, of getting there? Just the logistics of getting there, cost of fuel and time, uh, but still it's important that, uh, you know, it's important yeah. we do that, right? It's important we acknowledge that treaty relationship. So is is it? It's a physical check you have to pick up. Then it's not just direct deposited, like a lot of things are. It's a physical five dollars. An actual five there, dollar bill. An actual five dollar bill. You go there. Uh, you you say who you are, and uh, they have a band registry. They look for your number. They look for your name. They look for your treaty number, and then they count out the money. What amount would be adequate in twenty twenty four, in your view? Well, that will have to be determined, right? Mm-hmm. That'll have to be figured out. I mean, if you take a look at the cost of goods uh, in 1871 compared to the cost of goods now, it has to represent and recognize the inflation, inflationary cost of goods that have gone up. I mean, in some instances, you know, a pound of bacon was, how much was a pound of bacon in 1871 compared to what it is now? It's $10, right? Uh, cost of clothing. So it, uh, someone will have to figure that out along the way. We haven't, I haven't done that yet. We haven't done that yet. And so the goal is of the, of this lawsuit for you and your community just to get that annuity to match where we're at today, or is there more to it? Well, it's it's to match where we are today, but also to acknowledge that things will be in place for uh, certainly my grandchildren and those children that are not born yet. So it's it's not a one-time payment. It's not a one-time fee. It's, it's now and into the future. Reparations for, for, for past and bring it into today today's uh, economy and then recognize the future economies. There are those who, who have come to feel that this is symbolic, the fact that it's been kept at this amount. But you're saying it, it, it's, you clearly disagree with that. This is not oh, just no, the symbolism. I, that, that uh, I think in 1940s, uh, there's some bureaucrats that decided that the $5 was simply a token. But if you take a look at government's own records and history, uh, they fully acknowledge what the intent of the annuity was. Uh, What they failed to acknowledge was cost of inflation, the cost of goods going up, the cost of everything going up around us, the value of the resources. In a statement to CBC News, Crown Indigenous Relations writes that it can't comment on the lawsuit, but a spokesperson there says that, quote, honoring the treaty relationship and working together in partnership with First Nations is key to advancing lasting reconciliation. And, quote, they also say they recognize more needs to be done to renew the treaty relationship and that they're they're open to looking at ways to advance this important work. Uh, Those are their words. Do those words mean anything to you? Are you optimistic that that things will change? Well, we recognize and we have a working relationship with the federal government uh, on on certain aspects of Treaty 2. But there are certain things that uh, they don't want on the table uh, to negotiate, which is fair, which is understandable. So in those areas where they're not willing to negotiate, uh, regrettably, we're forced to take actions like this. 
This, uh, which are the areas they they don't want to negotiate? They say they're they're well, uh, looking at ways to advance it. This is not one of them. Trudy mm-hmm. for example, we're not the first one that have brought this forward. Mm-hmm. There's others across this country. Others have won. Ultimately, could lead to negotiation, right? But uh, someone had to push the envelope, and uh, that's what this class action is intended to do. The fact that you had to to push the envelope, as you put it, and launch this suit, what does it say to you about reconciliation and and the commitment to it? I mean, this is a journey, right? This is a journey that we've gone through since signing of treaty. And uh, where we're at at this particular time is just another phase in that journey. I'm hopeful that more will be done. Uh, but at the end of the day, treaties were be- made between two sovereign nations, and we expect to take our rightful role back as a sovereign nation, as a sovereign entity in the treaty relationship with, uh, with the federal government. Ron, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ron Missy Abbott is a member of Lake Manitoba First Nation. He's one of the people suing the federal government over annuity rates. We reached him in Winnipeg Treaty 1 territory. Marlena Engelhorn is putting a lot of her money where her mouth is. The 31-year-old lives in Vienna. She has inherited a fortune from her grandmother, and she doesn't want it. She's been vocal in her criticism of Austria for scrapping its inheritance tax, and this week she has revealed a plan to redistribute some $36 million Canadian worth of that fortune, and she's asking Austrians for help giving it away. 10,000 invitations are landing in people's mailboxes this week, and eventually 50 people will be chosen to help redistribute the money. We reached Marlena Engelhorn in Vienna. Marlena, I think it's safe to say most people do not dream of being taxed one single cent more. You do. Why? Because like most people who don't dream to get more taxed, I am one of those people completely opposite, who doesn't get taxed enough. I'm wealthy and wealth is not taxed in Austria. Inheritances are not taxed in Austria. And I think it's high time that not only people who already do all of the work contribute to our society and our public infrastructure, but also those who really can afford to pay more tax, like me. You've described your situation as winning the birth lottery. Can you describe what you mean by that? Exactly. So um, I am only wealthy because I was born in a rich family. And I think in a democratic society of the 21st century, birth should not be the one thing that determines whether or not you're going to get to lead a very good life. I think we should make sure that we have equalizing structures that make birth absolutely irrelevant and really just guarantee that within the society that you're in, you're going to be able to make a good life and have a good life and not be doomed by your birth either. Because when I'm born lucky and I'm one of the richest people, I'm part of the 1%, and you're not part of the 1%, that means you're born unlucky. And why would we continue that if we can choose to do it differently? So you and your team have sent out 10,000 invitations to people chosen at random right across Austria. What's your pitch in that letter to them? Because it's going to be surprising when they open it, I bet. So the pitch letter basically says, hello, um, and then there's the name that I don't know. Um, you're invited to join the, um, we call it Guterat, which translates to good council, basically, civic council, civic assembly. You're, you're invited to join this. Um, this is the task at hand, like talk about wealth inequality. We don't care whether you think wealth inequality is good or is bad. That's not the point. We want all of your opinions to join. We want everybody to be part of this. Feel free to just reply. Um, you will be 
uh, joined by 49 other people. You will have six sessions at six weekends, starting mid-March, ending beginning of, of June. And whatever ideas you come up with in order to deal with our inequality, depending on how you decide you judge it, will be translated into concrete action if you want that, because you also get a budget of 25 million out of um, my inheritance. And um, you're free to decide what to do with it mm -hmm. unless it's it goes against like life or against democracy mm -hmm. or against the Constitution. Like those are no, no rules can't be profit oriented. Like that's not what this is, because then you wouldn't call it redistribution. You would call mm -hmm. it investing. And that's a completely different field. I'm not in that field. But other than that, really, it's up to them to decide whether it goes to groups, to people, um, everything to one group, everything to a lot of different ones, different sectors, because um, inequality and the way our resources are distributed is something that is also a present uh, issue in, let's say, the climate justice field or in the um, racial justice field. Like you, you can find this everywhere and whatever they find out and whatever they decide will be done. And I don't get a veto or anything. I just have to witness it as everybody else does. You are a descendant of the man who, who founded the German chemical company BASF. He later sold that in the 19th century. Uh, and you've said that your wealth is more directly from the company Böhringer Mannheim. Then you got your fortune from your grandmother after she passed. So I wonder... At what point did this shift happen for you? Was it an evolution or, or did you feel uncomfortable with this wealth right away? I like to think that I did consider all sorts of social justice principles before that. It was a catalyzing moment to be announced the inheritance. I was thinking about stuff earlier, but I always I knew that the, the family was wealthy and I could always say, well, it's theirs and it's none of my but I don't have to do anything about it. And when I knew I was going to get it and wanted to be happy about it, because when do you get announced that you get a double-digit million sum just like that, just like a gift, basically? You never do that. And I couldn't be happy. I was angry instead because I knew it was, it was, not, it was not fair. I could not justify that I just got that whilst knowing that there are so many people out there struggling, working their butts off, trying to make a living, not even ever going to touch a fraction of this kind of money. And... um so I realized it's not my family's money anymore. It's also my money, my wealth. And if any of my thoughts are worth anything at all, I have to follow through and act on them and um, walk the talk. How much of your fortune are you going to give away? What will you have left afterwards? Eventually nothing. So I am currently covering my living expense. Like I have to pay rent and stuff, sure. right? So I'm covering that with my wealth because I don't work for a salary right now. Also, I don't want to take anybody's place in the, in the working on the working market because I am wealthy. I have nothing to do there. It's none of my business. But when I transition into becoming a person who just has to work for their income like everybody else, or at least like 99% of the people, then I will um, I'll have a little transitioning amount. And as soon as I've got this transition done, and I hope this is going to go fast and smooth, then I will redistribute whatever's left. So eventually, everything will be redistributed. This is a huge chunk, the biggest chunk of all of my wealth. But there is a tiny amount left that's going to be for my transition phase. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of um, left um, committed redistributional amounts that are also still on my account, but they're, they're already committed, like I can't touch them either. Mm -hmm. And then there's the budget to cover for all of the costs of the of the civic assembly project because I'm paying for everything. What do you imagine yourself doing when you're one of the 99%? I always thought I was going to go into editing because I started um, studying German literature and language. But I'm not sure this is going to be it just because I have absolutely no idea how this year is going to develop. And I want to 
be open for any kind of weird things that might arise. We'll see. Maybe I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really just because I want to be one doesn't mean I am qualified at all. I, I will just have to then find something else. But it'll, it'll be fine. I'm, I'm born into a rich family. No matter what I do, I will always be having a very, very good and tight safety net. One that I think we should provide as a society to everybody, and that shouldn't be a matter of birth privilege. Mm-hmm. But I will have that, and so I don't think that mm-hmm. there's going to be an issue for me. Marlena, I appreciate your time. I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. That was Austrian heiress Marlena Engelhorn, who wants to redistribute the equivalent of $36 million Canadian of her wealth. She's in Vienna. Two words for you, hosta takeover. That's what comes to this co-hosta's, sorry, co-host's mind every time I pass a garden or enter a garden center, because you have to admit those unglamorous stalwarts are everywhere. That may be just a mild personal plant peeve, but my point is this, there's more to plant life. Step outside the garden center and there's way more, as it turns out, wild and just waiting to be discovered. In 2023, scientists documented more than 2,000 new species of plants and more than 2,000 new species of fungi, too. Dozens of those finds were made by researchers at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in the UK. Martin Cheek is a senior research leader there. We reached him in London. Martin, I know you and your colleagues at Kew had a hand in many of these discoveries that our listeners just heard about. What is it like for you personally to, to be out in the field and then realize you've come across a species unknown to science. It's the most exciting thing in the world, I can tell you. There's nothing better, nothing beats it. And, and, we, and we should say, you know, in, in, in a lot of these cases, these are plants known to locals in the areas you're, you're doing your research, but they haven't been scientifically documented. Is that right? Certainly in some cases they're already known to the locals, but not in every case. Many of these new species haven't been found before because they're quite rare and they occur in really, they've got really small geographic ranges. So um, sometimes we find, in fact quite often we find that there's no local name for the species. So the majority of what we're talking about today are entirely new discoveries? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I'd say so. Well, let's talk about some of the discoveries, and we will talk about fungi. I know they have a special place in your heart, so don't despair. We we will give them their due. But uh, in terms of some of the other new discoveries, what caught your eye? What excited you the most? The thing that excited me the most was this new species of what looks to be a carnivorous plant from Mozambique. These are plants which attract, trap, digest, and absorb the nutrients from animal prey, usually insects. Um, There are several hundreds of species that are known to do this, but it's a tiny percentage of plants on the whole that do it. But what's amazing about this particular new species is that it seems to be carnivorous in in a family that from which carnivory has not been known before. Okay. There was also a new orchid discovered at the top of a volcano in Indonesia. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. So 
it was known that there's a very rare blue orchid, which was almost legendary, but it hadn't been seen for, I think, 60 or 70 years. So a group of mainly Indonesian uh, biologists got together to see if they could refind it. Does, is it still alive? Mm. So it's known from the top of an extinct volcano in in an island called Waigio at the western end of New Guinea. So they got there, climbed to the top, and they refound this blue orchid. But while they were there, being orchid specialists, they looked around, found several other species of orchid, and one of these with bright red flowers, really vivid red flowers and quite large, um, turned out to be a new subspecies. It, it's um, really quite spectacular. It does sound stunning. I've become enamored of uh, a few things on this list, but also a phrase that came up as we were preparing for this conversation, charismatic megaflora, and that it can be a problem in your view. Can you describe for our listeners what you mean by that? Well, it's a twist on charismatic megafauna. Mm -hmm. And we often, as biologists, as botanists and, and mycologists, often complain about the fact that all the public attention and funding goes into big furry animals mm. and people seem not to think that that plant species, even if they're equally rare or threatened, mm. are, are, are important in some way for conservation and protection. Uh, but in the plant world, there are certain groups which do get within the plant world all the attention, and one of those is orchids. So They're such show-offs, really. Can. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and, and because they get so much attention, fungi often does not, in your view. So tell us about some of the fungi that w was discovered. Whereas there are so many species of plant to be discovered in the tropics, we, one estimate is maybe 100,000 species remain to be found, which is maybe, you know, roughly... 10 or 20 percent of um, those species of plant known to be on the planet. With fungi, it's dramatically different. There we think 90 percent of the species of fungi on the planet are unknown to science. So this year, the story that's got a lot of interest is the fact that three new fungi have been found growing on lichens um, on rocks in Antarctica. It's important to know you know, what species we have on the, the planet. And that's a, a kind of first step towards their conservation. And that's what that's what this announcement every year uh, is uh, about for, for you and your team as well. Not just the, the excitement of these discoveries, the exploration, the knowledge, but also conservation and reminding people of the realities out there and the power that they have. Yes, con conservation um, has, has never been more important because at least one of these new species um, we believe to be already extinct globally and um, certainly with plants most of you know we want three quarters of the new species of plants that we're publishing now um, a study's shown that um, they're already at risk of extinction and this is because most species of plant that are new to science um, have very small geographic ranges. They depend on natural habitat and it's habitat clearance which is the biggest threat to plant species right now. So what do you hope people who are listening and then read more about the discoveries this year, what do you hope they do with this new knowledge? 
Well, I, th- I think one thing is to do what you can to avoid supporting that anything that looks like habitat destruction, not just in the area that you you might live in, but to also think about the impacts of your actions that might impact the tropics where most of the world's plant species occur and where we're still discovering new species. Martin, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Martin Cheek is a senior research leader at the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. He's in London. When our next guest heard her donkey do an impression of celebrated British actress Helen Mirren, she couldn't believe it. And you won't believe it either. Here's what it sounds... Oh, oh, sorry, it's time for the Irish lotto draw. Let's see how I did. Now for Lotto Plus One, and remember, the top prize in Lotto Plus One is a massive one million euro. So let's get Mm -hmm. started, and once again, the very best of luck. Thanks. First out, it's number six, Iberashe. Ooh, okay, okay. Joined by number nine, Ibra Lee. Yes, amazing, amazing. And 46, Ugh, Turn it off, turn it off. Well, I didn't have any of those numbers. I mean, technically, I didn't have an actual ticket, just this granola bar wrapper I had scrawled some numbers on. But I think we can all agree that there is something fishy about the lottery because I've never won it. Now, Sean Deneen of Kerry, Ireland, shared my suspicions, and he had a theory about the balls they use in the draws. In his words, I just had this idea that there might be something in the ball, like a magnet or sort of a computer chip that could control the outcome of the draw. I know what he means. Whenever I play pool or foosball or water polo, any game with a ball, now that I think of it, it's very clear that my opponents are cheating with magnets. But I hardly ever complain, whereas Mr. Deneen repeatedly contacted the Irish National Lottery requesting that someone crack open a ball during a draw to assuage his concerns. The lottery declined, but last week Sean Deneen got a package in the mail. Inside was an actual retired lottery ball for him to examine and keep, number 23. He says it is made of rubber and it's surprisingly heavy and that seeing it up close has convinced him... All lottery balls are legit. How nice for him. He gets a prize for his efforts, whereas when I complain about lottery balls being manipulated, I am roundly condemned. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.